Hey, everyone. Before we begin, we have an announcement. Actually, it's less an announcement than it is an appeal. We've put this off as long as possible, but to keep the show going in its current format, we need some support from, as the NPR people say, listeners like you. To that end, we've set up a show page on Patreon, which is a website where podcast hosts and other kinds of creators can solicit a small monthly stipend from people who enjoy what they do and want them to keep doing it. We'll keep this less obtrusive than an NPR pledge drive, but I want to take a minute to explain why we're asking for your help. Sam and I have never been paid to do this podcast. When we started, going on four years and 850 episodes ago, the show was just something we decided to do on top of our actual jobs. And when I left Baseball Prospectus about 350 episodes ago, I decided to keep doing it because I enjoy talking to Sam and directing with all of you, and because I didn't want to be the bad guy who kills a podcast people like, and also probably because I'm bad at business. It takes a lot of hours to do a daily podcast. It's not just the talking, planning, and scheduling, but also the editing, uploading, and posting. All the boring but necessary behind-the-scenes stuff that happens between me calling Sam and you hearing our conversation is a one-man effort, and that man is me. Over the years, our episodes have gotten a lot longer and our audience has gotten a lot larger, which means that our hosting costs are higher and production takes more time. Our Play Index sponsorship no longer comes close to covering those costs, and while the show sounds much better than it did before, that quality has come at cost to my sanity and sleep schedule. Our goal in asking you to support us on Patreon is to make it feasible for us to preserve the podcast in its current form, to keep it free to download so that anyone can access it, and ideally to do both of those things without subjecting you to the same ads for stamps and audiobooks and daily fantasy leagues that you skip past on other podcasts. We know that not everyone has money to spare on a podcast, but we hope that those of you who do have some disposable income will consider devoting some of your entertainment dollars to us. If you're a regular listener, you're getting a lot of hours out of Effectively Wild. This month, for example, we're doing 24 episodes and producing something like 18 hours of audio. As Sam has often observed, we all talk about baseball to avoid dwelling on our impending deaths, which means that we're giving you 18 hours this month during which you're not contemplating your mortality. We hope that's worth something. So please go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and become a patron of the show. You can give as little as a couple dollars a month or as much as the complete contents of your bank account. We've also added a few rewards for higher monthly donations in case the satisfaction of having helped sustain the show isn't incentive enough. It's easy to set up a recurring payment, and it's also easy to cancel in case we get the yips and lose our ability to talk about baseball. A percentage of the revenue generated will go to BP, which pays for hosting and gives us this platform, but the majority of the money you contribute will go to me and Sam so that we can keep doing a daily show while earning enough to eat avocados and dinners at diners in the stupidly expensive metropolitan markets where we've both made the dumb decision to live. Thanks for making it possible for the podcast to survive. And now, please enjoy the episode you were actually hoping to hear. Baby, don't you treat me this away Cause I'll be back on my feet someday Don't care if you do Cause it's understood You ain't got no money You just ain't no good Well, I guess if you say so I'll have to pack my things and go That's right, hit the road, Jack And don't you come back no more No more, no more, no more Hit the road, Jack And don't you come back no more What you say? Hello and welcome to episode 838 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. Picking up in our team preview series where we left off, which is the Seattle Mariners in the second segment of the show. George Bissell will be talking to Mike Curdo, the great broadcaster for the Tacoma Rainiers. 
but we will be talking to the author of this year's annual essay and also a writer for Baseball Prospectus and Lookout Landing, Meg Rowley. Hey, Meg. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So the goal of the offseason is probably to make the best moves, but if it were to make the most moves or to ensure that your opening day roster bears the least resemblance to the previous September's roster, Mariners probably would have won the winter, right? Oh, for sure. I think we have 17 or 18 new guys on the 40-man. I'll probably remember who all of they are just in time for some of them to get traded away at the deadline. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you can tell us who some of them are. The, <laughs> but usually you need some time before you can say what a GM's tendencies are or what type of players the GM likes to acquire. And Jerry Depoto has had this job for less than six months, which normally would not be enough time. But this team is already about half Jerry Depoto. So what can you say about how Jerry Depoto builds a team? Well, I think that what we learned early on is that the Mariners had no interest in a tear down and rebuild. Um, with the core they had, they were pretty keen to contend now. And I think that when we look at the guys that Jerry brought in, he was making, he was doing a couple of things. First, he was making a lot of seemingly simultaneous regression bets. So some of these guys were coming off odd years or were in circumstances that he probably viewed as not ideal. And he's looking at, you know, time or Safeco as a way to um, get them back where they needed to be. And I think mostly he was looking for guys who can get on base, um, who are more athletic uh, and are better defensively than we've maybe seen in the past and can supplement the core of, you know, Felix Hernandez, Nelson Cruz, Kyle Seeger, and Robinson Cano. I think more than anything, he was just keen to fill in the black holes that were existing on the roster. So rather than having multiple points of failure like we had last year, just having guys who don't all have to have career years, but who just need to be solid. How did the Mariners get to the point where they needed to do another defensive overhaul? Because that was kind of the thing that Jack Jurancic did when he took over, and it worked really well, and the 2019 won lots of games. Wait, everyone... wait, wait, wait. It worked really well? You're saying anything that the Mariners have done in the last 15 years has worked really well? You're going to have to give me some sure. evidence. Oh, God. 2018 won, uh, what, 61 games? That was then... before the... Oh, yeah, yeah. So And then they won a bunch in 2009. Yeah, and then they like... won 85 with the defensive overhaul. And then somewhere along the way, the Mariners turn into a, a bad defensive team again that just tried to hit lots of homers by right-handed hitters who didn't get on base. So wait, hang on. The, so <laughs> they, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my years right. So yeah, they won 85 with the defensive overhaul in 2009. Is what you're saying? Yeah. And yes. then, and then they kept going with that though, right? They were even more defensive in 2010, or at least they had all the same guys, and then they were terrible. And wasn't 2009? considered kind of a weird fluke bump that didn't really reflect their actual talent? I guess it was. And then, I mean, 2010, they were just as bad as they had been in 2008. So I I guess it, it would be a good thing for a GM not to do the same thing every year and to have multiple approaches to team building. But I'm, I'm sort of surprised that he gave up on something that worked. But, you know, maybe it made sense. Did it make sense to, to change gears like that? Well, I think part of the problem was that even the guys that panned out defensively were so flawed in other ways that they weren't, you know, folks that we could really keep on the roster. So the outfield defense has been a disaster for 
a while. Um, I mean, Gutierrez had that amazing year in 2009 and then has been probably the unluckiest man in baseball when it comes to his health since then and just hasn't been death to flying things for a while. And then, you know, he brought in guys who were old and slow and, as you said, were, you know, talented offensively, but couldn't quite figure it out in the outfield. We had prospects who didn't pan out. So Dustin Ackley was fine in left, but he wasn't great. Um, and center field has been a killing field since 2009. So the defensive side of things was neglected for a long time. And the guys who turned into good defensive players had bats that were so disastrous that they couldn't be kept in the lineup. So, you know, Mike Zanino is a very good defensive catcher. He's a very good framer, but he hit, you know, below the Mendoza line last year. <laughs> so even the guys that really have proven to have defensive chops just couldn't stick. I mean, the only exception to that is Kyle Seeger, who has improved his defense every year that he's been in the majors. Wasn't really thought of as a particularly talented defensive third baseman. Wasn't really thought of as, you know, a particularly talented anything when he was drafted and has been the lone sort of success story. But other than that, you know, I watched a lot of games where Mark Trumbo played left field last year. Yeah, and I know you're a fan of pitch framing, as am I, but I'm guessing that even though the Mariners had guys who were good at that, when catchers as a whole hit 159, 205, 259, it saps some of the joy from their defensive performance. Yeah, I, I think that... Zanino is the perfect example of what was really wrong with this team, which was that when you draft that poorly and develop even worse, you just don't have the tools in-house to address bad luck. And so I think that some of Zarensic's moves, I mean, they look bad in hindsight, but they made some sense at the time. But when you don't have any you know, young talent to fill in holes when guys get hurt or they go through a bad stretch or they don't quite pan out the way you expect them to, you're sort of stuck. And I think that last year was the culmination of all of that stuff coming to play at the same time where he, you know, seemed to have a strategy going into the year. And when it didn't quite work the way he expected it to, when the outfield platoons, you know, that involved Ricky Weeks didn't quite work as expected, he didn't have the ability to sort of shift midstream and find a new solution to the problem. And that's where you get a lot of weird trades and sort of flailing around. That's how you end up with Wellington Castillo on the roster for 35 seconds before being dealt for more right-handed power. So I want to, um, I mentioned 15 years a second ago. I, I want to read a paragraph that I wrote in an email when we were all emailing during the offseason about the uh, Mariners essay and trying to crystallize our thoughts on what the Mariners were and what we should be writing about. So I wrote, if you're a Mariners fan, you woke up one morning in October and realized that, holy cow, they have the longest postseason drought in baseball now. Fifteen years ago, the Mariners had a massive buffer between them and the Royals, Pirates, Orioles, Rays, but that buffer gradually degraded. It's not that the Mariners have disappointed, but that they've quietly become, by one measure, certainly not the only measure, the worst team in baseball to have rooted for over the past generation. Does that overstate the experience of being a Mariners fan? Especially, well... Uh, I'll just let you answer it. Not really. I mean, <laughs> I think that the the new regime is pretty keenly aware that what's at stake for them isn't just a season, but is sort of 
making the case for anyone to stick with this team at all. Even the high highs in the years that we were bad were sort of framed around eventual disappointment. I mean, getting to watch Felix Hernandez pitch has been a great joy. Watching Felix Hernandez lose game after game because, you know, he gave up one run and the team couldn't muster any kind of offensive performance is soul crushing. And so I think that in any given season on any given day, this team can be fun to watch. 2014 was tremendously fun because we surprised and, you know, got within one game of the playoffs. But even that year where we were so close was such a typical Mariners year. You get career years out of, you know, Kyle Seeger and Felix Hernandez. You have Robinson Cano turning in an all-star performance. You have Fernando Rodney somehow riding the roller coaster of his own performance to a pretty good year. And even then they can't muster one more win to get into the postseason. So it's been, it's been a rough, it's been a rough 15 years. And you know, 2001 is a long time ago and 95 is even further back. And I think that the the mission for this organization is to get fans to continue to invest in care. So if, uh, if you had gone to the county fair and an antique arcade fortune teller machine called Zoltar Speaks had uh, granted you the wish to trade Felix Hernandez's entire career for two postseason appearances over the last decade, would you do it? No. I would not. I mean, watching him, especially in his Cy Young year and then last year, last year being 2014, not 2015, I mean, it's a pretty special thing to have a guy go out on the mound and on any given night you think he could throw a perfect game tonight. He could throw a no-hitter. He's that good. I mean, that's a pretty amazing redemptive story. So I wouldn't, but that's also because, you know, People losing the postseason, getting to watch a guy like that for, you know, his entire career, that's something really special. How do you feel about him at this point going forward? I'm nervous, but optimistic. That's the benefit of recording this in March, I guess, is that I'm in the middle of sort of that that early um, spring training optimism. We don't quite know what happened last year. I mean, he's insisted that he wasn't hurt in the second half. He did look uh really up and down. I think that some people are worried that the the innings are starting to catch up with him. He's thrown a lot in his career, far more than you'd expect for someone his age. But I don't know, 2014 wasn't that long ago. And he's never, you know, in the last couple of years, he hasn't been that velocity dependent. So I think that he can adapt and change. And I think that it's really going to come down to health. But I will always be nervous. And by the end of last season, we were you know, kind of holding our breath every start because we just didn't know what version of Felix we were going to get. And that's a pretty new experience. Speaking of March optimism, this year, uh, last year at this time, I wrote that the Mariners' greatest strength was their lack of weaknesses, which as it turns out was not my best work. Uh, (laughs) if, If I had written that statement about the 2016 team instead of the 2015 team, would you agree with it? Or if they do still have weaknesses, where are they? I think that they're less pronounced than they were in hindsight. I mean, I remember you writing that and feeling, you know, hope and optimism and then kind of (laughs) resenting that statement as the, as the season went on. But in hindsight, the, the flaws of the 2015 team were maybe easier to spot than, than we knew at the time, right? So we probably shouldn't have been surprised given the, given his peripherals that Fernando Rodney fell apart the way that he did. 
because uh, he, he benefited from some, some luck in 2014. I think that their weaknesses aren't as glaring as last year. I think when you look at someone like Leonis Martin, who is probably the biggest bet that, that Jerry is taking, he doesn't have to hit that well for his defense to, you know, play over the course of the season, but he has to hit some. Um, so I think that there are some spots where Jerry is sort of hoping that guys rebound from lows. Um, I'm a little nervous about the back end of the bullpen. I'm a little nervous about um, Steve Ciszek coming in as the named closer because he had a pretty horrible 2014. But they just they seem more solid than they did. Um, and I think we can expect guys like Robinson Cano, who had a miserable first half last year because of stomach ailments, to probably not have to play the first half with stomach ailments and the second half with a double sports hernia. So some of the guys who disappointed in 2015, I think, you know, we can look at those results and hope or assume that they're sort of uncharacteristic of what we might get going forward. You mentioned C-Shack, um, and of course they also have Joaquin Benoit, who seems to be a much better reliever and one of the dozen or so best relievers in baseball. And they, they ruled him out as the closer almost immediately. Is that, uh, is that like a, is that like a scam? I don't know. Benoit has been this amazing ageless wonder. So I, I think they like him in the setup role. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that, changes if things don't go well with with C-Shack. I think they they like C-Shack. They expect that he's going to rebound. For whatever reason, Jerry seems confident enough in that that he was willing to name him the closer going in. But I wouldn't be surprised if things fall apart. I mean, Benoit is clearly there as insurance, not only for the bullpen, but for the closer role in particular. Yeah, no one ever really seems comfortable making Benoit a closer. And maybe he's not all that eager to be a closer himself. But I remember when he was on the Tigers, Jim Leland was very resistant to making him a closer. I remember writing about that. But he does sort of get pressed into service sometimes and, and does okay. I recently yeah. heard someone smart describe Robinson Cano as a sleeper, which uh, you wouldn't really think of a 33-year-old superstar as a sleeper. But He, he does kind of look sleepy out there. <laughs> <laughs> He's just casual. <laughs> yeah, right. Doesn't sprint to first base every time. <laughs> just sleepwalking down the line. Um, so the Mariners had kind of a playoff caliber core last year, and I guess they still do. It was everything else on the roster that was the problem last year. And I guess you could call their core aging. Every core is aging. I wouldn't say they're aged, but they have a couple guys, Cruz and Cano, who are in their mid-30s-ish, and Felix is about to turn 30, which is sort of scary, and uh, Seeger is 28. So do you think that what we saw this offseason, all the activity was sort of a stopgap do you expect that during DePoto's tenure with the team, you will see a full teardown rebuild? I think it's going to depend a lot on how well um, the farm rebuild goes. So I heard him at, at Mariners Fan Fest say that, you know, guys who tell you that a major league roster takes five years to uh, rebuild are just trying to keep their jobs, but the farm takes a lot longer. I think they will they will ride those contracts because going to have to. Um, but he seems pretty optimistic that a lot of the help that we're going to need in the years to come is going to come from 
the inside and from a rebuilt farm system. But you can tell he's building flexibility in with the guys he brought. I mean, there aren't any new um, really long-term contracts and none of them are that expensive. So I think it's going to depend a lot on how much of um, his prior, uh, say, farm system experience is him and how much of it has been sort of outside influences. It's not like we look at the Angels farm and want the Mariners to emulate or replicate that. But I think he's optimistic that we're going to find younger talent than we've had and we're going to have to rebuild it because it's not there right now. Jerry um, Depoto is a guy who has always had a very good reputation for which I'm not altogether not responsible for. And I think it's, I don't know, maybe fair to say that I've kind of been in the tank for him uh, for a long time. It's also true that he uh, was the GM of maybe baseball's most disappointing team over the past four years, considering payroll and number of trouts on the roster. So when he, when he was hired, uh, was it, I, I don't know if I'm asking about your own take or the uh, collective Mariners fan fans take, but uh, was there any um, skepticism of him because of the results and or has the offseason changed uh, the opinion or the conversation one way or the other? So to give the sort of broader Mariners fan perspective, I think uh, Mariners fans are pretty uh, ready to accept any um, bad take of the Angels organization. So I think a lot of that failure, um, fair or not, was sort of laid at the feet of um, of ownership and, and social. So I think people were really optimistic. You know, it's nice when you have a GM come in and say the things that um, sort of smart baseball observers expect from every team, but we haven't heard in a long time. So hearing a GM use... Um, uncharacteristic BABIP as a, a justification for a bat rebounding or hearing the front office say that we're not going to bunt when we don't have to and give away outs. All of that is, it's sort of telling how poorly um, the organization has communicated in the past and how weird some of the decision-making was that that's enough to make Mariners fans optimistic that we're going to enter a new condition and a new era for the team. But I think that he said a lot of the right things that we've all been waiting to hear from the front office for a long time. And so people were pretty excited. And I think that the moves he made in the offseason were were pretty universally loved with the possible exception of the Carson Smith trade. So he hasn't done anything that really made anyone sort of turn up their nose. And he was gifted, you know, Hisashi Iwakuma coming back. So I don't think he's done anything to really undermine the positive image that we had of him, how much that's a reflection of him and how much of it is, you know, lasting fatigue from, from Jack Zarensic is is going to be the question for the season. But so far, I think people are pretty uh, enamored with him. Do you think this is going to be the big Taiwan Walker year? Or do you still think that there will be a big Taiwan Walker year? There were encouraging signs last season, but I guess the overall results were a little underwhelming. Um, I'm, I'm pretty high on Taiwan Walker. I think his second half was very, very impressive. And it's clear that he's sort of figured some stuff out. He's not as fastball reliant as he was, although he probably is still going to need to develop his secondary offerings going forward. But I think that he has potential to be sort of the big breakout story from this Mariners team if they go anywhere at all. And he's not that spring training baseball means all that much, but he's looked very, very good in spring so far. So I'm cautiously optimistic about Taiwan. I think um, if Felix's 
decline last year ends up being um, a more permanent thing rather than sort of a one-season aberration, he might well end the year as the best pitcher on the Mariners' rotation. All right. Well, do you want to give us a 2016 win total for this team? Oh, man. This is the danger of March (laughs) (laughs) because I'm in full, but hey, what if they did though mode? Plus Um, their greatest strength is their lack of weaknesses. Oh, God, Ben, you're going to do this to me again. (laughs) Um, I think that they might outperform Pakoda by just a little bit. So I'm going to put them at 86 wins. All right. Well, you can find Meg's writing at Lookout Landing and at Baseball Prospectus. Pronounce your Twitter handle Twitter handle for me. <laughs> it's Meg Rowler, although many people think it's me, Growler. <laughs> yeah, so. I wasn't sure which one to go with, so I thought I'd let you do it. <laughs> Is that intentional? Uh, no, although it's kind of worked out that way. Um, many people call me Meg, and I have a couple of friends who call me Growler for whatever reason. So I don't know. Why the R instead of the Y at the end? Uh, you know, I don't know. One of those weird Twitter moments back in 2012. I don't know. <laughs> it's better than an unnecessary underscore. Yes, I avoided that mistake at least. <laughs> All right. After the musical break, you will hear the second segment of the show, which will be George talking to Mike Curdo of the Tacoma Rainiers. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Mike Curdo. He's the play-by-play radio broadcaster for the Tacoma Rainiers, the AAA affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. You can follow him on Twitter at Curdo World. Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm always uh, happy to be on my favorite Baseball Prospectus podcast. I really appreciate that. That's uh, kind words. I love it. In an article for the Boston Globe right around this time last year, Alex Spear wrote that the gap between AAA and the majors is growing for hitters, not just because major league pitchers are better than ever. They throw with a greater velocity. Relievers are throwing harder than they ever have in the past, but also because of an increase in sophisticated advanced scouting, defensive positioning by major league teams. Have you noticed that the gap between AAA and the majors has really increased, especially for hitters, over the last couple of seasons? I don't know if I've necessarily noticed it, although if uh, I wouldn't have trouble believing it if that was a study that had, uh, you know, that there were some facts to back that up, because it does kind of make sense. You mentioned, or uh, I guess uh, the article mentioned, the, uh, the velocity of pitchers you see in the majors that you don't see in AAA. And that's pretty real. Uh, you know, a typical AAA team might have one uh, relief pitcher, possibly two, throwing 97, 98 miles per hour. And there are often teams in the PCL who don't have anyone uh, throwing that hard. And so I think that uh, there is a pretty, you know, sizable gap there, especially when you get to the, the bullpens, uh, you know, between AAA and the big ones. It seems like, you know, the. The flamethrowers uh, move up through the minor league system so quickly and don't spend a lot of time in AAA because if 
if they are throwing 98 miles per hour and they're showing command in double A, they probably don't need a lot of time in triple A. You know, a lot of times these guys are in our league for maybe a week or two before they get uh, called up to the big league. So uh, I think the, I think in terms of relief pitching, yeah, it is kind of an eye-opener for hitters when they first go up to the majors and there isn't somebody pitching in the sixth inning who's throwing 89 miles per hour like there often is in AAA. You have an opportunity as a broadcaster to talk with uh, players, managers, and coaches on a daily basis. And based on your conversations with them, what do you believe is the biggest challenge relating to player development, at least at the AAA level, in your experience? The, in, in talking to our coaches, and you know, we've had a lot of uh, great coaches and managers uh, in, in Tacoma while I've been here, the, the manager always says that the biggest part of his job is keeping everybody happy because you have such a hodgepodge of uh, players in, in, in a triple A situation. This is true for all 30 triple A teams. You have the guy who just got sent down from the major league and is upset. You have the 32 year old a veteran who's been an up-and-down guy for six years, and he just signed with your organization this offseason, trying to get back to the major leagues, you know, trying to hang on, trying to get another shot at the big leagues. You have the 22-year-old hotshot who was a first-round draft pick who has moved his way up the ladder and is a top prospect and has just reached AAA for the first time and has his sights on the big leagues, and, you know, he has... And, you know, and then he, there's these veterans around him who are kind of jaded. And then you also have in the mix the 25-year-old who was drafted in the 30th round uh, and has methodically made his way at AAA and has never been thought of a, as a prospect. But now here he is, uh, one level below the big leagues. And, you know, it's uh, you get this mix of players you get and what their expectations are and what their happiness level is about being in AAA is a real mess, and uh, the manager has to try to sort through that and kind of keep everyone on the same page and keep spirits high and, you know, try to make sure that everyone's performing their best during the game. So I think that's the biggest challenge that uh, managers and coaches have uh, at the AAA level. You see a lot of managers now, especially at the major league level, they're getting hired, and a lot of them don't have any experience managing anywhere, much less in the minor leagues. Or Do you think that maybe – that's going to change when you look at uh, you talked about it, managing personalities and that's just such a big part of the game is having that type of experience do you think we're going to see more teams going that route go, uh, moving forward with their managerial hires placing more of an emphasis on the mental side of the game and and valuing that experience that a lot of minor league managers have working their way up through the years yeah i don't uh, i don't know where that's going to go i've been kind of perplexed by it uh you know, so many teams in the Mariners just did it have, uh, with Scott Service have hired a manager who's never managed, you know, in the minors. And that is the, the, the new trend. And I'm kind of surprised by it because usually, you know, in baseball, it's pretty old school business. And you want, you know, people who have experience doing, you know, managing before to managing in the majors. So uh, I, don't, I don't really see what the future of that is going to be. There are a lot of you know, really good baseball men who have been major league coaches who are now managing in AAA, trying to get that managerial experience, and you know, they're getting passed up by front office guys who are being appointed as you know major league managers or former players who are immediately brought into a manager role from what is essentially retirement, like in Colorado. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to project where that's going to go in the future. I think 
you know, if all the guy, if, if there's just a real, you know, run of these uh, managers with no experience struggle, then I think it'll go back to the way it used to be, where uh, they they look for managers with experience in the minor leagues. But you know, if some of these guys who don't have any major league experience all of a sudden start uh, managing, you know, winners, then you know, maybe there's something to be said for for uh, all of the things that they bring to the table that aren't about having managerial experience, but maybe lend themselves to being good major league managers, like being able to manage people and uh, handle the media and be a conduit from the front office to the locker room and all that. So, you know, there's a lot of skills involved in that major league job, and, you know, maybe it'll turn out that, you know, actually managing minor league games isn't the biggest one of those skills. We'll see how it plays out in the long run. The Mariners have struggled with player development, especially with position players. Uh, during the Jack Z era, I think that was has been pretty well documented. What do you expect to change with Jerry Depoto taking uh, over as the general manager based on what you've heard this offseason talking with uh, the coaching staff and front office people with the Mariners? What do you think is going to change the most about how they go about developing players? Well, I think uh, there are I have two answers come to mind immediately. And one of them is kind of wish casting maybe on my part. And the other one has been talked about in public quite a bit. They've their new uh, farm director, uh, Andy McKay, has an extensive background in the uh, mental uh, mental skills, mental skills coaching, if you will, and the mental aspects uh, and psychological aspects of trying to succeed in baseball. And it sounds like they're going to put a real emphasis on uh, you know being mentally strong over the course of minor league baseball season and trying to emphasize uh, you know the the psychological aspects of the game and make sure that their players are in the proper mindset over the course of the year. And it seems like something that's, that, that they're actively going to coach. So uh, they've always had mental skilled coaches in the minor leagues, but I think that they're going to be more heavily involved this year. So I think that's one thing that's definitely going to change with the new, uh, the new regime. The other uh, answer I had to your question was that I hope they're going to be a little more patient with the players and the minors this uh, during this uh, new regime because mm-hmm. the one criticism that so many people from other organizations constantly voiced to me during the Zorentic era was they're rushing all their players up. You know, they didn't spend enough time in the minors. And uh, this is what scouts that I talk to from other teams and front office people with other teams who I run into over the course of the, the PCL season. Uh, it's just a, it was just a constant theme that was harped on by these people. Why did they move them up so quickly? And they're talking specifically of Mike Zunino and Dustin Ackley and Kyle Seeger, too, although Seeger survived. Uh, so, you know, that they, they really pushed guys, particularly position players, quickly. And I, I, I'm kind of hoping that uh, the new regime is going to take more of a, a slow approach to, to moving up the position players and making sure that they're they're ready for that next promotion, not just for the majors, but from AA to AAA and from the advanced A to AA and all, you know, all the way down the ladder. One guy who the Mariners are expecting to have a big impact at the major league level this year is shortstop Kettle Marte. Played 65 games with Tacoma last season before being called up. Uh, what are your impressions of him getting to watch him a bit with the Rainiers last year and, and briefly at the end of the 2014 season as well? Yeah, Kettle Marte, he's a fun player to watch. He's uh, high energy on the field, he's, uh, very active and Switch hitter, hits line drives from both sides of the plate, a little more pop from the right side of the plate, but, you know, he's not a power hitter. That's not his game. Has uh, good speed, uh, can turn doubles into triples. 
can steal a base when it gets on. Uh, a pretty aggressive hitter, although uh, in his uh, major league experience uh, last year, he actually threw a lot of walks. He had 24 walks and 219 at-bats uh, in his uh, you know, a couple of months in the big league last year. So that was really encouraging to see that patient at the highest level. Defensively, there were always a lot of scouts from other teams who thought maybe he couldn't stick at shortstop primarily because of arm strength. But in the big leagues, uh, you know, with Seattle last year, he looked like he could handle it. Now, it was just a 50-game trial, but uh, he looked like he could handle the position, and the Mariners are moving forward with him as the shortstop of, uh, well, not the future, of right now. So, uh, Cattell Marte should be a fun player to watch this year in Seattle. Jesus Montero finished second in the Pacific Coast League in batting average, hitting 355 with 18 home runs last year. And he's a guy who really uh, fell off the map completely, it felt like, a couple years ago. What adjustments have you noticed that he's made in the last couple of seasons? And is there a chance he makes an impact with Seattle in the near future here? And the big change he made was getting in shape. He got his life back in order, both on a personal level and then also on a professional level by getting, you know, getting himself in shape and losing 40 pounds and becoming physically strong again. And that was prior to last year. And then the the numbers really showed uh, he set a Tacoma franchise record for highest batting average at 355. And our team has been around since 1960, so that's uh, that's a pretty serious record uh, at the AAA level. And it, when he got to the majors in sporadic playing time, he didn't really hit that much last year. In the minors, he's always crushed left-handed pitching, and uh, in his previous incarnation as an everyday player in the big leagues, when uh, he was a catcher, he always hit lefties well. He didn't really last year in a small sample size. But right now, the Mariners are looking at him as a possible right-hand side of a first-base platoon with Adam Lynn. He's battling the uh, recent... Uh, signing from Korea, Day Ho Lee, uh, for that job. So uh, we'll see who gets that. But Montero's out of options. I don't know. You know, my gut says that he's really unlikely to get through waivers if uh, if the Mariners decided they didn't have room for him. You'd have to, I would think that one of the teams that's going to lose 190 games this year would claim him on waivers and just play him every day to see if, uh, see if, that, you know, see if uh, they can get some value from that. So I have trouble seeing him come back to Tacoma and clearing waivers. So I think it's pretty much a make or break with the Mariners or else he'll probably look at a future with another team. Who's a player you've seen over the last few seasons? It doesn't have to be a current Mariner or uh, it could be another PCL hitter or pitcher, but who's someone that's really impressed you that you're going to be watching closely this season? Yeah, Keeping it local here to the Mariners, I'm really think that there is some value uh, at the major league level in Sean O'Malley, who is a switch hitting utility man to play anywhere on the diamond, but has speed and some on base ability and uh, brings a great attitude to the ballpark every day. Uh, managers and coaches love him. And, you know, he's a, uh, he played well for Tacoma last year in his first year in the Mariners organization. They got a September call up and actually, uh, was uh, he was hot in September in the big league. His on base percentage in 24 games was over 400. So, you know, he really made the most of his call up last year. Right now, he's in a, a difficult uh, three way battle to be the Mariners' utility man. Uh, he's battling Chris Taylor and uh, the recently acquired Luis Sardinas. But uh, one of those guys is going to get the utility job, and the other one's going to end up uh, in AAA. But O'Malley is an exciting player. He's fun to have in a AAA lineup. 
and he's the type of person you root for. So I'm kind of hoping that he gets a, a shot in the major league on a more permanent basis, if not with Seattle, with somebody else. So that's someone who uh, I think could help a major league team. I could even see him helping a winning major league team in a super utility role uh, coming off the bench. So uh, he's just the guy I'm rooting for. Jabari Blash last year hit 32 home runs between Double A AA and Triple A, which was the second yes, most. He in did. The, second most in the minors behind AJ Reed, a uh, highly touted prospect with the Astros. He was picked up by San Diego in the Rule Five draft. Tell us a little bit about the Blash experience. It's fun. It's fun. It's like uh, going back to the steroid era without the steroids. Because <laughs> he's one of those guys who, when he makes. You know, every at bat has a chance to end in a tape measure home run. When he hits a home run, it's not a cheapie. Uh, he just has tremendous strength. He's a tall, lanky guy with really long arms, the long, long levers, if you will. And so when he gets extended, he can just destroy a baseball. And, you know, 450 foot home runs are something that you see over a season of watching Jabari Blash. And then the, the fun things about player like, players like that is sometimes he hits home runs by accident you know he'll <laughs> get jammed off the handle and pop one up in the air to the right field and it'll end up just barely clearing the right field fence you'll be amazed that he just hit an opposite field home run off the handle of his back you know he's so strong so it's fun to watch uh you know wish him the best in san diego and uh, you know as a as the tacoma rainiers broadcaster i just have this little bit of like uh joy in the back of my mind knowing that if for some reason it doesn't work out and he doesn't make the Padres opening day roster he's probably coming right back to Tacoma and we're going to get to see a lot more home runs next yeah you get to break out your home run call so that's always uh exactly that's always a good thing um he I mean, he, he's a guy where you're you're glad Statcast was invented for because the exit exactly. velocity, the exit velocity data is going to be fun. He's going to be uh, up there on those leaderboards. Uh, you've been the voice of the Rainier since 1999, so I want to get your thoughts on uh, one broadcast related topic. And the hardcore baseball fans listening to a podcast like this, they don't just want their broadcast just to entertain them. They want to be informed. They want to learn something about the players and the game they're watching that maybe they didn't know before they turned it on. And we've seen more and more broadcasters begin to incorporate advanced stats that go beyond the simple surface stuff like batting average and RBI uh, into their calls. So my question is, how do you find a way to incorporate some more advanced statistics uh, into your broadcast while still finding a way to keep the casual fans who just want to listen to the game engaged? Uh, what I do is uh, I don't dive into the advanced stats, but sometimes I'll bring them up. Uh, when uh, you know the, the first time through the lineup, I always give the basic stats: batting average, home runs, RBIs, and then I use on base percentage a lot uh, on the air because it's an important stat, and I think it's now in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the if if there is you know if I happen to read something about an advanced stat that particularly highlights one of the players in the game that I'm broadcasting, I might spend some time explaining it and talking about it. Uh, that's really kind of the only uh, instance in which uh, uh, I'll really get specific about it. I might be vague about it on a more common basis, <laughs> like say thing in general, like, you know, the advanced defensive uh, metrics say that so-and-so is a really good defensive center fielder, you know, and, and be kind of vague about it, yeah. you know, and, as it pertains to a particular player. But on the whole, 
it's you know when you're a baseball announcer calling games on the radio, you're you know it's baseball for the masses, and so you have to be uh, aware of your entire audience. You you have an interesting perspective on the Mariners because you're at the AAA level. You've seen a lot of their current players come through the minors. Uh, you you know about the guys coming up in the system. So my final question for you is going to be simply: Who is the most important? player in the entire Mariner organization when you look at this team for the next maybe five to ten years who's the guy who's the most important player in the entire franchise right now that you're looking at well I, I think the answer to that is uh, clearly Felix Hernandez who has been for a couple of years now I think he's been the most important player in the organization he's the face of the franchise uh, they sell uh, a couple thousand extra tickets for each of his starts with the King's Court down the left field line. He's under contract uh, through 2019. He lives in Seattle. He loves it here. Uh, you know, he's never been on a playoff team. He wants to be on a playoff team. He's mentioned in recent interviews that, you know, it's, it's, he's never been on a playoff team and he, you know, he feels that that time is soon. It's coming soon in Seattle. And, uh, he's the guy that fa- the fans love, and uh, you know he's, he really is uh, the, the king. He's King Felix, and he's the leader <laughs> of the team. And you know you could say Robinson Cano just because there are so many years left on that contract, and they have so much money tied up with him for the next uh, you know uh, eight years. But uh, Felix Hernandez really is the heart and soul of the franchise, and there's no one uh, in the organization. There's no minor league prospect that's going to usurp him in the next couple of years. So. Uh, Felix is the most important guy. If you could describe his beard in one word, what would it be? Unfortunate. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, anytime you guys uh, want need me on your show, I'll be happy to do it. Awesome. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Mike Curto. You can check out his Tacoma Rainiers coverage all season long on his excellent blog. It's uh, rainierscurdo.wordpress.com. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, Some great notes on Efren Navarro up there right now, who uh, we both uh, have a mutual appreciation for, I found out. So that's that's good to know. And you can also follow him on Twitter, at Curto World. Now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for our Mariners episode. Thank you to Meg and Mike for coming on. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Any contribution is appreciated. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can pre-order our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out on May 3rd can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anywhere else you can buy books in advance. It's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team last season. And you can get a discount on the price of the play index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. Quick note, over the weekend, I spent some time cataloging all the songs and intro sounds that have been used on Effectively Wild over the years. I put it all in a spreadsheet, which you can find in our Facebook group, and an enterprising listener named Arthur Rudolph used that spreadsheet to create playlists of all the songs that we've had on the show on Spotify and YouTube. So go to the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. A lot of you have expressed interest in the music that we've used on the podcast, and this is a way for you to see and listen to all of it in one place. All right, that's it for today. We will be back tomorrow with the preview for the New York Yankees. Can ever change the love I had